Hello and welcome to another episode of Canada mit C or in English Canada with a C. My name is Annika Weikinnes. I'm the project manager of the Konrad Adenauer Stiftung Canada. In this episode, we will talk about Canadian Arctic security. We will touch upon topics such as the Arctic Council, Canada's Arctic sovereignty, Russian and Chinese interests in the Arctic region, and climate change, among other things. Today's distinguished guest is Dr. Rob Hubert. Dr. Hubert is an associate professor in the Department of Political Science at the University of Calgary. He is also a senior research fellow with the Center for Military and Strategic Studies. In November 2010, he was appointed as a director to the Canadian Polar Commission. His area of research interests include international relations, strategic studies, the law of the sea, maritime affairs, Canadian foreign and defense policy, and circumpolar relations. Today's interview will be conducted by Dr. Norbert Eschborn, director of the Konrad Adenauer Stiftung Canada. Norbert, over to you now. Welcome, Professor Rob Hubert. The Arctic has gained prominence in the international geopolitical debate in recent years. However, it still does not seem to be recognized by all policymakers in the West as a security-relevant ocean. Is this perception true? And if so, why is it so? This perception is totally wrong. Uh, the Arctic has been one of the most critical, important strategic zones of operation since the beginning of the Cold War. The end of the Cold War created a little bit of a perception that some of the geopolitic drivers that made it such a dangerous zone uh, had dissipated, and they probably did. But with the return to power of Putin and the decision that his administration has done to militarize the Arctic starting at around 2002, 2003, the Arctic has resumed its almost central importance in the international system as a zone of strategic interaction. Canada is an Arctic state and member of the Arctic Council since 1996. For our German viewers, can you please speak about Canada and the Arctic region, specifically about its Arctic and Northern Territory, its Arctic and Northern population, and its role in the Arctic Council? Canada very much sees itself as an Arctic nation. It's in our national anthem. We always claim to be a Northern people. Um, we seem to have, at least from a rhetorical perspective, a strong commitment to the Arctic. The reality, however, is somewhat different. Uh, the vast majority, about 95% of our population, is within a 200-mile um, uh, or 400-mile kilometer zone to our southernmost border. And so as a result, the northern three territories that we have in our northern uh, provinces um, really do not attract that much actual political action. They attract political attention, but not action. Within our Northern Territories, we of course have a mix between those who came from the South and the Indigenous populations. And we're still very much trying to reconcile many of the challenges we had in terms of the earlier treatment of the Indigenous populations within that region. The mere geography and extreme climate, however, have made it extremely difficult for Canada to actually be able to facilitate the type of social programs that we have in the South. As having said all that, Canada has always seen itself as an active player from an international perspective in the Arctic region. As such, we were a major player at the end of the Cold War, along with the Finns, 
with the development of new modes of international cooperation. The Finns take the bulk of the credit, but Canada actually was the drafter of much of the creation of the predecessor of the Arctic Council, which is the Arctic Environmental Protection Strategy. That then led into the Canadian efforts to create the Arctic Council. This is something that goes all the way back to Brian Moroni and other Arctic thinkers such as Franklin Griffiths, Mary Simon, uh, to name but a few who suggested we need to cooperate. And so the Arctic Council was created very much with the intention that it would serve as a body that would bring together all of the Arctic nations as long uh, as well as the Northern Indigenous peoples to have an opportunity to discuss and share their experiences and to facilitate cooperation. I need to point out though, the Arctic Council very specifically does not look at hard security. This was the, one of the American requirements for joining. They said, no, we will not look at hard security. And in fact, there were other bodies at the time that were dealing with that. And so it's not that the Arctic Council somehow left this void. Uh, we had the uh, uh, agreement called AMEC that dealt with dealing with the decommissioning of Russian submarines from the Cold War. We had other facilitations of some of the larger international security aspects ongoing. So that means that the Arctic Council to a very large degree was quite powerful in providing a forum for discussions and talking about shared problems and ultimately reacting. And the major focus has been and continues to be on environmental protection. And that's why the Arctic Council and why Canada is so justly, justifiably proud of the creation of this body and the continuance of it all the way up until the second phase of the Ukrainian war, where of course we now have much of the Arctic Council on pause because of the efforts to try to contain Russian aggressiveness in Ukraine. The Canadian government has developed an Arctic and Northern policy framework. And what does it entail? And is Canada looking to other Arctic states for inspiration? And if so, to which ones? Canada has developed this ongoing political culture where we always have now a formalized Arctic strategy. And this goes all the way back to the uh, Uh, to the Moroni government uh, when it was dealing with an Arctic sovereignty issue with the Americans when, a, when, a, when a, one of their icebreakers went through the Northwest Passage without permission. What we see in the most current efforts to develop an Arctic policy by the Liberals is, of course, a focus on domestic issues. Now, generally speaking, most Arctic policies try to look at both domestic and foreign and international issues. One of the striking features of the Liberal uh, administration is that they have almost entirely dedicated their Arctic strategy to dealing with issues pertaining domestically. The first and foremost and the most important to the government is, of course, the issue of reconciliation with its northern Indigenous peoples. This, of course, is flowing from some of the efforts of the Liberal government to, of course, remedy what have been long-term problems in terms of their particular treatment. The second aspect that the policy focuses on is, is environmental and economic development, with environment, of course, leading. What is almost absent from the, from the report is almost any mention in terms of the international component. It does say that Canada wants to encourage, wherever possible, a rule-based, norm-based system of cooperation in the Arctic. And it also points to its preceding defense policy to look at security issues. But that's about it. 
Um, it's this is one of the things that many critics pointed out is that it doesn't seem to provide very much guidance in terms of what this policy is supposed to do in terms of positioning Canada in the international forum. The reality is, though, of course, is that the resumption of the fighting in Ukraine in February of 2022 have, has upended many of the hopes that the Canadians could continue with what they characterize as Arctic exceptionalism, the idea that the Arctic is a unique area of cooperation. I think that the Russian resumption of its war with Ukraine has, of course, laid bare to the fact that it's impossible to have cooperation with a nation that is so willing to use military force as, as what we're seeing occur right now in Ukraine. And as a result, uh, it would be fairly safe to say that any initiatives by Canada on trying to improve the rules-based system in the Arctic region is on hold at this point in time. My next question concerns some of the challenges to Canada's Arctic sovereignty. Why is Arctic sovereignty an issue to Canada? This is one of those interesting questions. Um, to a very large degree, every single Canadian politician always has to sort of take, take the vow. Um, I will defend Canadian Arctic sovereignty. I dare say that if you actually try to, to, to push them on, okay, what does that mean to you? Uh, you probably would get fairly nebulous answers, maybe something to the, to the extent that it's the right thing to do to defend Arctic sovereignty. But if you ask them, well, what are you defending? I dare say that most of them probably would not have a, a clear understanding. It's, it's just one of those emotional issues. Now, you can actually trace it all the way back to a crisis that we had with Great Britain and the United States over the Alaska Uh, panhandle. Um, we had an incomplete boundary and the, the, uh, the mechanism that was set up had three Americans on it, two Brits and one Canadian, or, or two Canadians and one Brit, and the Brits sided with the Americans. This was, of course, just in the days before World War I, and the British were trying to curry favor with the United States as they prepare, pre prepared for war with Germany. Now, having said that, that created a, a impact on the psyche, which then gets amplified during the Second World War, when of course we have to rely on the Americans to help us to be able to guard our northernmost frontier, mainly against the Japanese, but also to a certain degree against the Germans and then subsequently against the uh, Soviet Union. Now, as that develops, we then start having a couple of incidences with the Americans where they refuse to accept Canadian claims of sovereignty over the Northwest Passage. In a nutshell, we say it's internal waters, which gives us the right to say who can come in and under what conditions unilaterally. The Americans say that it's an international strait, which means that as long as ships follow international rules, they don't have to ask Canada for permission. So we've had this, this has been a politically very contentious issues. The, the first one occur, occurs in 1969, the next one is in 1985. The other sensitivity, and this is something, of course, uh, your viewers in Europe will be very interested, is that the Europeans are quite happy to let the Americans take on the Canadians in terms of this, But the, the British-led UK at the time, or, or, or European Union, has taken positions quite similar to the Americans. In other words, what we can see is that there is a series of diplomatic protests on the part of the EU and individual 
European countries such as France, Germany, uh, Belgium, saying that, no, Canada, the way in which you have attempted to assert control don't work. So therefore, you don't have control. And so for Canada, this is an issue of extreme political sensitivity. Now, it's political sensitivity because if you actually, if we're being honest with ourselves, we've taken strong diplomatic efforts to try to assert our sovereignty. We haven't really done all that much in terms of building the capabilities that, say, the Russians use for asserting their sovereignty over the Northern Sea Route. We don't have the type of surveillance capability that the Russians have. We don't have the number of icebreakers. We don't have the overall infrastructure that the Russians have done. And so our efforts to control the Northwest Passage are substantially weaker if we compare it to what the Russians have done. Now, having said all that, where that leads us to in 2022 is that officially the United States still does not, uh, uh, does not accept the Canadian position. The European unions continue to accept the American position. And we're starting to see signs that some Asian countries may in fact start also taking that position. South Korea is one country that at certain bodies such as the IMO have challenged the Canadian ability to control. And so has Singapore. And so, you know, once again, I think that as the ice melts and as shipping comes forward, the issue of control of the Northwest Passage is something that is going to resume on the political map. And it'll just be interesting how, if this government is the one that faces the next crisis, how it will be able to respond to any such challenges. What are the potential implications of Canada's recent efforts to reassert its sovereignty in over the country's northern territory on Canada's U.S. relations? Well, one of the things you have to appreciate is that we really haven't done much to reassert our control with the Americans. We have an agreement that we signed with the Americans in 1988 in which they agreed anytime they sent any of their icebreakers through the Northwest Passage, they would ask for our consent. Now, once again, without getting into too much detail, from an international legal perspective, there is a distinction between consent and permission. And this was sort of a fig leaf to sort of protect Canadian sensitivities, but at the same token, get the Americans to do something more than what they do in any other international strait. And so it was a compromise by both countries, but it has worked very well. Now, up to this current period in time, Any American surface vessel that would go through the Northwest Passage would have been an icebreaker. And so therefore that agreement covered all American ships. Now, have we done anything further to facilitate American cooperation? We think that one of the reasons why the Americans are willing to act so differently with Canada regarding the Northwest Passage than say with, uh, with say Iran, which are obviously is an enemy or any other country that is bordering an international strait is of course our deep defense cooperation. Um, basically Canada has a shared aerospace defense of North America through an agreement called NORAD. We also more or less get, turn a blind eye and, and actively cooperate actually with the American submarines that go through northern waters and we suspect through the, nor uh, through the Northwest Passage. The problem that we're facing is of course, as has been brought very clearly into consideration in recent time, is that we have led our defenses in terms of North America's northern aerospace, i.e. under NORAD, really fall apart. 
the 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 electronic system the radar systems that we were using <coughs> were last updated in 1985 now we've had some updates to it but the the core infrastructure of it is in 1985 would you use a computer today that was in 1985 let alone depend on being able to detect russian missiles coming in we also still have not made a decision on modernizing our fighter capability there are issues surrounding our infrastructure of our northern air bases and so from an american looking in they see the nordic countries they see they see uh, denmark norway iceland and finland and sweden that will presumably soon be nato countries taking a very active role in modernizing their northern capabilities since about 217 218 so the impacts of the of the the beginning of the ukrainian war in 214 are felt and we see for example denmark going from a decision where it was going to get out of the fighter uh, fighter aircraft uh, game so to speak reverse itself and go within a two-year period make the decision to buy a bunch of f-35s and so i think that the big fear that i think we should be aware of is that as canada does less and less there the americans will at one point or another become somewhat impatient and if the americans become impatient with us does that then mean that they stop giving us a special consideration which quite frankly that's what they've been doing since um since 1985 and so, or 1988 to be technically correct and so there is a there is a growing danger that we may in fact be architectures of our own um, uh, challenges if in fact the Americans stop seeing this as a special element now we're nowhere near that right now but the trend lines obviously are 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 troubling in that in in that capacity in recent years we have seen temperatures rise in the Arctic due to climate change. How would you assess the economic opportunities that accompany the possibility of an ice-free Arctic? Well, from a Canadian perspective, they're limited. Um, Canada has made a policy under the Liberal government of not pursuing offshore resource development. So, as you presumably have the ice melting and as you presumably have a greater facilitation of being able to enter into these waters and say go after the oil gas or any other resources canada has put in a moratorium of any type of offshore development and so the ice could be melting the ice could be getting worse as far as the government policy goes the offshore just simply is not going to be developed so we're not going to see economic development Likewise, one can look at Baffin Island um, that has one of the purest deposits, the largest deposit of iron ore. And one would presume that with the melting ice, we probably could ship more of that, um, that iron ore out. But the reality is on that, once again, the government has made the decision that the protection of environmental um, elements are more important than developing that particular resource. And there's a very real danger because of some recent decisions that in fact the company may cease production. And so for Canada, even though that the ice is melting, and even though, say, for example, Norway, which is increasing its offshore oil and gas development as it's able to reach more and more as the ice even goes further north. Now, keeping in mind, the Norwegian waters are relatively ice-free because of the, the, the ocean current systems that are working. But, you know, the, the melting ice doesn't really have that much of an influence on, on our offshore. 
In terms of our in terms of um, our our resources that exist within the landmass of the Canadian North, once again we've imposed a regulatory system that makes it very difficult for many companies to come in. And so you might have ice melting or temperatures increasing that may be uh, making it more more available to be be developed or. Or, you know, conversely, you can also have the, you know, the, the expectation that as the permafrost melts, the infrastructure and road systems are going to become more problematic. But all of that is relatively mute for Canada because we are not developing the resources. And it's, it's on the basis of a very active determination to, in fact, place environmental protection over economic development. And so, you know... Climate change may be changing the, the physical face of the Arctic. When it comes to resource development in Canada, we're putting up the roadblocks to ne negate any, any possibility. The one issue where we won't have control possibly is in fact, if the ice melts enough and the Russians remain problematic in terms of aggressive action, will outside forces see the Northwest Passage as a viable international waterway? Now, we need to have a lot more melting for that even becomes a topic of conversation. It may be something in the medium term where we start seeing other countries saying, you know what, Canada, we see this as an international strait and we're going to come through. So that is a form of resource development. But once again, it's something that Canada itself will not benefit from because we don't have a, a we're saying there are internal waters and B, we make development very difficult within Canada because of the, because of the conscious decision to place the protection of the environment of the region at a higher rate than the economic development. So I dare say for Canada, resource development in the Arctic is going to be extremely uh, problematic, not from a climatic perspective, but from a governmental regulatory perspective. China is a self-described near-Arctic state and has been an Arctic Council observer since 2013. What are China's interests in the Arctic and Does China pose a credible security threat to Canadian Arctic? One of the intriguing things of trying to understand the Chinese, and particularly when it comes to the Arctic, is that we in the West, in Canada in particular, tend to say they're not doing anything till they're actually doing anything. And so we have the short-term vision, so they're like, oh, they're not here. Oh, they're here, so they're doing something. The reality is the Chinese become interested in polar politics as early as 1984. This is the time period in which they enter and start setting up active scientific programs in Antarctica. And so they have a series, I think it's two and a half different bases starting in, in 1984, and they continue to become an active player in terms of the Antarctic Treaty System. Now, having said all that, We now are knowing that as the Chinese are developing their capability to operate in Antarctica, they were also looking north. And so the first time we become aware of the fact that the, the Chinese have a long-term polar policy is in 1999. And in 1999, the Snow Dragon, or Zhu Long, their first um, uh, ice uh, icebreaker, shows up at Taktayaktak. Now, Taktayaktak is this, uh, is this uh, small port on well, or a small um, uh, community on the western part of the the northern part of north america and so they show up at tuk and we go oh my god chinese are here 
Um, there's a lot of confusion. They did actually ask permission, so it wasn't a question that they just simply appeared without permission, but it was still a bit of a rude awakening in 99. We tended to dismiss that, though, as a one-off. But in, in fact, what the Chinese were doing was developing a very active polar science effort. Now, this stems from their expertise, their, their, their experiences in Antarctica, and then they bring it up to north, and they start utilizing it as a means of making themselves a player. As their, as, their, as their economic situation improves, they start dedicating more resources to the Arctic side of this rather than just simply the Antarctic side. Now, the question, of course, comes, well, what do the Chinese want? Well, there's four things that they publicly say that they want. The first one is, of course, they want to be a player on the governance system. They want to be involved on decisions because they make the argumentation that when it comes to climate change, fishing, uh, maritime transportation, all of these are economic issues that interest and pertain to China. Therefore, China should have a say in terms of what is happening. And so that's that's the first thing they always tell us. And that's why they have entered as an observer on the Arctic Council. But it is also why they were a core negotiator in the high sea Arctic fishery agreement. The second thing, of course, ties into the economic opportunities are there. The Chinese are very active in terms of trying to determine any place where they see possible economic activity. They've engaged uh, Greenland. They've engaged Iceland. They've attempted to engage Canada. Um, but And they've engaged the Americans and set up various economic uh, partnerships, shall we say, or tried to set up economic partnership. The third thing that they are interested in is the science. They are quite right when they say that the climate change effects that are occurring in the Arctic will affect them, and they're correct. The effects are going to affect everybody. And so they say they, as their scientists, as a, as a leading scientific country, they want, to, they want to participate in that. And so that's the third thing. Um, the fourth thing, of course, is that they want to be, okay, so it's, oh, maritime transportation. As a country that's increasingly dependent on trade, they also say that understanding the northern sea routes is also critically important. And one could dare say that they tie to the, the Silk Road initiative in terms of an international understanding. So those are the four issues that they say talk about publicly. So it's governance, it's economics, it's transportation, and it's science. There is a fifth one that they don't talk about and gets to your, your, the second part of your question, and that's the security ramifications. We see the Chinese starting to try to learn how to operate their surface fleet within northern waters. In 2015, a, a, a small fleet of Chinese naval vessels, five of them, uh, flowed through the Bering Strait. Um, and once again, that's the first time we've ever seen sort of a Chinese flotilla showing up that far north. Chinese vessels have been visiting and making port visits to, to, to Russia. Uh, in, uh, off the Kola Peninsula. We've seen them visit uh, Denmark, Finland, uh, uh, and other uh, Nordic countries. And so with that we see that they, they are trying to learn all the navigational challenges that come in. The thing that everybody is watching is what happens to their submarine force. Are they going to give their new submarines, particularly the Type 94s and 96s, will they give them an under-ice capability? And so you sit there and say, okay, well, why are they doing this? The most suggested answer is that they're doing it so that they have the capability of challenging both the Americans and the Russians. There's this naval theoretician, he's an American, called Mahan, 
who said that if you want to become the peer competitor, if you wanted to be the most powerful player in the international system, you had to have the most powerful Navy and you had to be able to go everywhere. Doesn't mean that you are everywhere, but you had to have that ability. And so there are some that are suggesting that what the Chinese are trying to do is at least cause the Americans to be concerned that in any future conflict, their submarines or naval forces can in fact all of a sudden show up and challenge the Americans in this zone that had been an area of, of, of peace. The other factor that's harder to get a handle on is that there are of course reports that the Chinese are trying to use hybrid warfare, particularly in terms of cyber warfare and other means of influencing decision-making within the Northern region. Now there's some who've pushed back recently and said that this isn't as big of a threat as it was thought, but we still think that it's happening. The bottom line is that you've got a country that sees itself as an equal to the Americans, as the most powerful state in the international system. They are trying to learn to go everywhere. They are trying to prepare for the inevitable conflicts that will arise, such as the expected war over Taiwan. And as a result, they want to be able to go everywhere and contain everywhere. And so it's not terribly surprising that there is a security dimension, primarily maritime, but also presumably uh, aerospace, of being able to operate in these regions in, in, in future time. And now, once again, I want to stress, the Chinese are not like us. They do not think in four-year increments. They tend to think much longer, 20, 30 years. So, and so you have to ask yourself, okay, where do the Chinese see themselves in the Arctic, not in four years, but in 20 years. And that becomes very difficult for us to, to sort of visualize. Arctic states have made agreements related to search and rescue operations, oil pollution and scientific collaboration. And in what other areas could Arctic states cooperate? And could security co and cooperation in the Arctic among Arctic Council members go beyond concerted efforts to find climate change, for example, to respond to security threats in the region? You do have an international body that responds to security threat in the Arctic, and that is, of course, NATO. And the hard reality is that how do you have the Arctic Council, and this is what people are saying, is let's make the Arctic Council somehow a confidence-building measure that we can somehow bring together the, the Russians with everybody else, and we can basically return to the era of Arctic ex exceptionalism. Where that falls apart is if you have a state that is that is an aggressor state, that is in fact the one that is leading the, the conflicts that we are seeing in Ukraine, and you could probably add Georgia and against Chechnya as well. Um, how do you, what would be the point? Like what, what does the Arctic Council with its current structure, what would you be trying to do? Would you be trying to improve communications? Well, I mean, the reality is, do you really want to have improved communications with Russia right now, or even in, in, in the forthcoming period, time period? Um, is it to have good relations between this military? Well, if you do that, are you not basically sort of saying to the Russians, hey, yeah, you, you know, you're killing all those Ukrainians, but let's get together and build confidence building. And so, The, the, the pushback to this idea that the Arctic Council somehow should be this body that will respond to the security issue always runs into the direct problem. Well, to do what? What, what are you wanting it to do? You can't have the confidence building in the midst of this type. You know, the fact that the Russians have invaded Ukraine, 
are killing Ukrainians and that the West has taken the position that it has, sanctions, providing armaments, uh, munitions to Ukraine, you, you know, you're, you're not going to succeed with anything. And so you have to stop. The other part is that the claims that the Arctic Council should do something just simply ignores the history of the Arctic. When the circumstances were right, the militaries were able to come together to make meaningful changes on both a hard security and an environmental security. Once again, I go back to the AMEC agreement that was signed between Russia, United States, Norway, and the United Kingdom. What AMEC dealt with is saying, okay, Russia, you don't, you're, you're an economic condition means you can't decommission the hundred or so nuclear-powered submarines that you built during the Cold War, and they're literally rotting in the Kola Peninsula and threatening a major environmental security risk. Okay, fine, we get that. So United States, Norway, and, and UK come together and say, we will spend money. We will spend, and it's billions of dollars. We will help you, Russia. We will, we will pay, provide the technical expertise, teach you how to decommission these submarines safely. And we did that. So we did have an international multilateral body come forward when it was necessary, and it provided important insights. And so, yeah, we had that. We had other bodies that dealt with other issues of disarmament. And we, of course, come back to the fact that we have NATO and NORAD as multilateral organizations that deal with Arctic security, but they're not dealing with Arctic security to bring everyone together. They're dealing to try to defend against one of the Arctic states, i.e. Russia. And so, you know, we come back again. What would it mean to have the Arctic Council do something when in fact we see NATO right now responding to the Russian reinvasion of Ukraine by having to deal with the requests from Finland and Sweden to join? And so, yeah, we do have an organization to do a security. It's NATO. Now, it flies in the face and people that want cooperation, that want a, re a return to Arctic exceptionalism will say, no, 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 that's not what I want. That's not what I mean. Well, what do you mean in, in that context? And so, therefore, we've got to be careful about these people that say, let's just use the Arctic Council. It'll be the body. Well, no, it's not going to be the body. That's, that's the bottom line. And it has been fundamentally altered by the resumption of fighting that the Russians bring to Ukraine. And it'll be a long time before all eight of the bodies are able to, or all eight of the state parties are able to come together and do something meaningful in cooperation, never mind on the military side. The well-known proverb says, if you want peace, prepare for war. In light of the deterioration of the world security since February, What is your assessment of the current risk of conflict in the Arctic? What should be done to keep the peace? And what has to be done to prepare for conflict? The Russians have to know, A, that we are serious about responding. And so that's everything to do with NATO uh, solidarity. So, you know, for example, uh, the, the, the NATO Secretary General visit Northern Canada, we have to be seen as being together. We have to show the Russians that we are united. The second thing, and this relates to the changing international security technological environment. The Russians are developing these new delivery systems that are stealthy, 
long range and very fast. Uh, we've, they've got different variants of hypersonics. They're developing torpedoes that can travel great distances, the Poseidon system. Uh, they have glide hypersonics besides the cruise missile hypersonics. And so we see clearly that the Russians are developing the capability of actually being able to attack the West and more frighteningly, utilize nuclear weapons. Now you turn around and say, oh, Rob, 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 the Russians are all talk. They'll never do anything. Well, the problem is, you know, we've seen Putin make a lot of statements and he seems to follow it up. I mean, we, we tend to forget, we tend to think in the, West, the democratic West, political leaders don't mean what they say. And we discount when, when Putin gets up and start talking about the threat utilizing nuclear weapons to defend his interests if NATO does too much vis-a-vis -vis Ukraine. In my view, you got to take him serious in this particular capacity. And so what the West has to do is it has to be able to do, in the words of General Van Herk, who is the head of Nor Northcom and NORAD, an American general, who says, you need to have extended deterrence. And what is extended deterrence? Extended deterrence is not only convincing the Russians that you're going to know when their missiles come overhead so you can fire your missiles and you can all die together. That's that's the traditional deterrence. You also have to convince the Russians that, OK, we know your new delivery systems, the hypersonics, the Avgards, the uh, the Poseidons. We know all of them. We know how dangerous they are, but we are going to be able to detect them and if, in fact, you, that doesn't stop you, we are going to be able to use our own weapon systems to attack you and we will prevail. That's extended deterrence. So in other words, you're convincing them, yeah, we can fight. We will fight and we will defeat you. So don't start the fight in the first place. And so what we see clearly is this is happening with the with the Europeans. The Europeans are coming together for better communications, better better satellite systems. We see them coming with the sharp end of being able to react. If everyone's flying the F-35 together, you have a much greater interoperability and ability to respond to the Russian aerospace threat. If you have a concurrence that, yeah, we have to learn how to do anti-submarine warfare, yeah, that will help tremendously. And so what we see most Western countries, I say most because Canada is always the outlier here, but we see most North, uh, North, Northern NATO countries along led by the United States actively modernizing their Arctic defenses and surveillance capabilities. And that is the only way that you're going to reach an authoritarian leader such as Putin. Thank you, Professor Rob Hubert, for your assessment today and for all our viewers interested in the issue. May I recommend CAS Canada's 2021 study Beyond the Surface, Russia's and China's Approaches to the Arctic. Thank you very much. My pleasure. Thank you for tuning in today's episode on Canadian Arctic security. If you like to learn more about the work of the Konrad Adenauer Stift in Canada and stay tuned for upcoming events, publications and more, you're welcome to visit our homepage and sign up for our quarterly newsletter at www.kas.de slash Canada. Thank you, and I hope you will join us again in our next episode of Canada Mitzi.